Let's return this morning to the end of 1 Timothy. First Timothy 6, and we'll read verses 3 through 21. And we're looking this morning at that last section, verses 17 through 21. May God bless us as we read his holy, inspired, infallible word together. First Timothy 6, page 1180. Page 1180 in your pew Bibles. And we'll start to read at verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. In our text, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel drew many poor people, many slaves, 
many women, especially widows, to Jesus Christ for refuge and into the household of God. It's a refuge for the poor and the oppressed. Christ is. But the gospel also drew rich people to Christ who also need a refuge. As much as anybody else, it drew Zacchaeus into its fold. It drew wealthy people from Ephesus into the congregation at Ephesus because Ephesus was a wealthy port city. And some of those wealthy people also came to faith in Jesus Christ, put their trust their hope in life and in death in the Lord Jesus and became part of that congregation. Now, earlier, Paul has a warning for those who desire to be rich, verse 9, and who love money, verse 10. But now he speaks a word to those who are rich, believers who are rich. And God has a special word for them. As Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So, Paul has a word of instruction for them, not to reject their wealth, but to use it well for Christ's glory and Christ's kingdom and to invest their lives in him. Wealth is truly enjoyed when you put it all at God's disposal and say, this is all God's, so I'm going to use my life, my wealth to honor him. So Paul closes the first epistle to Timothy with two charges. One is to the rich to live out the gospel. And the second is a special charge to Timothy to guard the gospel, to live the gospel, to guard the gospel. Well, first then, Paul's charge, God's charge to the rich to live the gospel. Now, compared to them, we might just all or almost all of us be in this category. But these verses... 17 through 19 mentioned two cautions, two commands, and some investment counseling. Two cautions. Two sinful ads or attitudes that are common among the rich, a false sense of importance and a false sense of security. Those are the two cautions. Number one, not to be haughty. Charge the rich in this present age, not to be haughty. That's to think highly of yourself, to imagine yourself to be a great person because of your wealth and to feel superior over others because of your wealth. It's, it's not to connect with those who struggle financially because they're lower and less in your mind. They're lower and less than you. And it's to use your wealth to control people and demand things as a form of power. Wealthy donors sometimes think they have more to say if they give more than others. A command not to be haughty. That's the first caution. Second caution, nor to set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Riches not only tempt us to be haughty, but can also cause us to hope in ourselves. We begin to look at all we've acquired and we get a sense of self, self-worth from that based on our accomplishments and our bank accounts and retirement savings 
our holdings, our possessions. And the danger then is a misplaced hope. It's natural to put our confidence in wealth and look for our safety in it. Our wealth makes our life secure and good. I have nothing to worry about, we say. What? What? Can wealth really secure you? It can't. That's the great deception. Because wealth is really so uncertain, many have lost vast amounts of wealth in one day when the markets collapse. Proverbs 23 verse 5 says, cast but a glance at riches and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Riches Riches are here today, gone tomorrow. They cannot be trusted. And then two commands for the wealthy. Two cautions. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Two commands. Set your hope on God. He doesn't tell the wealthy, get, get rid of all your wealth. Yes, that was a specific can to the, command to the rich young ruler. Sell everything you have because that was his idol and he needed to part with it. In this case, these are believers. Christ is their Lord. And so he's warning them and urging them to keep their hope in God. The command is not to get rid of all your wealth, but to put your hope in God who gives us everything to enjoy. Here's another deception. That enjoyment comes from wealth. Enjoyment comes from having things. Might not say that, but we easily feel that way. I'd be happier if, I'd have more joy if. And the Bible's so clear in that. Joy is God's gift. It's not wealth's gift to you. Joy is God's gift. Ecclesiastes 5.19 Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and given power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. Put your hope in God. He's the gospel. In him is the forgiveness of, the, of your sins. Wealth can't give you that. It can't atone for your sins. In him is a righteous status before God. Wealth can't make you favored by God. In him is eternal life. Wealth can't give you eternal life. In God is resurrection from the dead through Jesus Christ. Wealth can't give you that. That's why I put your hope in God because God is the gospel. He's the good news. He is joy. He's life. He's hope. He's happiness. He's future. Not all the wealth in the world can buy you the things that are truly wealthy, eternal life, the new heavens and the new earth, paradise. Life with the fellowship, the happy fellowship of the saints for all eternity. Put your hope in God. He's the one who, remember, gives us our life, it says earlier in the chapter. And he gives us our joy and peace. And he's the one who makes you kind and only the one who gives you a heart that cares about people. Eyes that sees their needs and a hand that reaches out to help. 
And only God can rescue me from the grip of hopelessness and meaninglessness. Wealth can't. Oh, how many wealthy people in our world are just a wreck. And they're miserable. And they're unhappy. And they can't sustain their relationships. Only God can give that to us. That's the work that he gives us through the gospel. His work. And note here that God gives us everything to enjoy. Remember how the ascetic legalists, beginning of chapter 4, are saying if you really want to be holy, they forbid marriage, they forbid eating certain foods, they said stay away from creation. No, it's to be enjoyed if it's received with thanksgiving. It's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. The proper way to handle possessions is not to reject them and call them evil, but to be thankful for them and enjoy them to God's glory. You see, when our hope is in God, wealth is not a problem. When our hope is in God, wealth is not a problem. It's a huge blessing. They become a problem when we put our hope in them and look to them for our well-being. That's when everything gets dark. And what's the way to enjoy God's gift of wealth? Share, share it. The greatest, the greatest solution to materialism is generosity, which of course comes from hope in God. So that's the first command, set your hope in God. The second one is, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Four commands really put in one package. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. God is calling us, brothers and sisters, to a life of giving. The best way, again, to fight materialism is to give generously. If you desire to be rich, that's a good thing. If you desire to be rich in good works. Earlier, he talks about the desire to be rich as a trap, a snare that destroys people. But if your desire to be rich is a different kind of desire, desire to be rich in good works, that's a huge blessing. That's where generosity starts, actually. First, with doing good works. It is a temptation for us as the rich just to throw money at things and stay in our offices, stay removed, stay in our gated communities. But the parable of the Good Samaritan is a great example, a great model for us. He was a man of wealth, but... Rather than just call 911 and go on and say, let somebody else take care of it, he stopped. He got his hands dirty. He helped the bleed, the bloodied and dying man. And he put him on his donkey and he brought him to a hotel and he paid for his care, but he got his hands dirty. He put his skin in the game. We stop and we put ourselves into it. That's where it starts. 
personal involvement in deeds of mercy. Every Christian is called to that. And then generosity as well and readiness to share. Remember that love, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, but money is not. Wealth is not a sin, but an immense responsibility, an awesome opportunity to help the poor and advance Christ's kingdom. Remember the false teachers, godliness is a way of gain. They use religion to serve their greed and get money. The believer switches that around, reverses that. Gain is a means of godliness. Wealth is a tool given to me to live a godly life, to take in the refugee, to help the poor, to support mission, to build the church of Christ. Lord, my life is for you. You gave your life for me. My life, either in its poverty or in its wealth, is for you. I give it to you. I think of how Zacchaeus, the day he was converted, he remained wealthy, I'm convinced. But he gave back four times all that he stole from others and then half of the rest gave to the poor. I think of the two Josephs in the New Testament. Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who gave his wealth to the kingdom of Christ by supplying spices and a grave for Jesus' burial, and that way contributed to the gospel in ways he didn't even know he was doing. He just knew that Jesus was the man to invest in. The other Joseph was Joseph Barnabas, who later became the missionary Barnabas, a rich man. And there was so much poverty, especially among widows in the early church, that he sold the field and gave the profits to the poor. He didn't sell all his fields, he sold a field. Generosity. And then there's the ultimate rich man. If I could give a third example, a third J, Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph Barnabas, Jesus Christ, the ultimate rich man. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. That though he was rich, he became poor for our sake, so that we through his poverty might be made rich. He made himself poor to make us rich. And that gospel is to live in our lives in the way we handle our wealth. He made himself poor to make me rich. And I'm gonna be generous with my wealth to make others rich. That is to supply their needs and to bless them. That's the gospel. That's the most joyous way of living there is in Jesus Christ. In the days of the early church, it was generosity more than anything else that showed the difference between Christians and pagans. The pagans didn't care for the poor because the poor had nothing to give them in return. But what made Christians different is that they did care for the poor. We read in Acts 4, there was not a needy person among them. Wow. It's a testimony to faith in Christ. 
And not only did the Christians care for their own poor, they, paid for the, they, they cared for the pagan poor as well. The followers of Christ were the ones who fed the hungry, cared for the lepers, rescued children left to die. And by the second century, the church father, Tertullian, was able to boast that Christians spent more on the poor in the street than pagans spent in the temple, in their temples. The result was the, rap, the rapid worldwide expansion of the gospel. When we live the gospel with generosity in the name of Jesus Christ, because my life now has become bigger than this world and its stuff and my wealth. Now I see wealth as a gift given to me to give back to God and to the care of his children and to support the needy. One commentator writes, generous Christians could have the same worldwide impact today. More capital is being generated now than at any other time in human history, yet the disparity between the rich and the poor has never been greater than today. And many valuable Christian ministries are hindered by lack of funds. The problem is not that there are not enough Christians, but many Christians are not generous in their giving. We scarcely realize what the church could accomplish in the world if we gave our money away for Jesus with the same liberality that Jesus gave his life for us. How true. How true. Those who have become rich by the grace of God must therefore be willing to enrich others. What an opportunity. Like the two Josephs. To invest in the kingdom of Christ and to show his glory and his love to our neighbors. It's a huge blessing. We all see it. We all feel that when the wealthy are devoted to the kingdom of Christ. And they love, they see the blessings that God has given them as tools for the kingdom of Christ. It's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful gift. And then third, there's investment counseling. There to do good, he says, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Live your life, dear people of God, as an investment in heaven. We don't live for the here and now, for verse seven, we brought nothing into the world and we'll exit with nothing. Paul's point is not that you can buy shares in heaven by doing good works. He is telling us that heaven has been given to you as a place for investing your life and your wealth here and now. If you invest God's gifts and earthly things, your investment will all come to nothing because it will all disappear. Earthly wealth will all perish. You have no future if you live for this world. You know when the Titanic was filling up with water and they were getting lifeboats ready and certain people were designated for a spot in the lifeboats? Some people sold for cash their spot in the lifeboat. 
What sense does that make? So they went into the watery grave with extra cash. And that's the kind of foresight that the wealthy often live with, or lack of it. It's time to invest in the kingdom of heaven. Those are the riches that will last. That's what Jesus said to the rich young ruler who had wealth as an idol. Sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, and then he says, right, you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. And then Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. True riches are not found here, but in Christ, in heaven, in the gospel, and the kingdom of Christ. These are the only riches that will survive this world and be carried into the next. You see, to give is not to lose wealth, but to gain it. And the Bible promises, or a smart investor is happy to part with substantial assets, provided that he will get something better in return. And the Bible promises that when earthly treasure is given away in the name of Jesus, it is exchanged for heavenly treasure. A good foundation for the future is the ultimate investment, isn't it? Unlike earthly treasure, number one, heavenly treasure cannot be lost Number two, it's a lucrative investment because it secures the infinite riches of heaven. Number three, it's a long-term investment because it will last for all eternity. And number four, it's a stable investment because it's backed by the faithfulness of Almighty God, our Savior. Can't be lost, it's lucrative, it's long-term, and it's stable. Thank you, Lord God that you care for the poor and you care for the rich to give us this charge. This charge is a gift of love. There's another charge here, the second one to Timothy. Guard the gospel. Guard the gospel. Verse 20 and 21, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Again, two commands, one positive, guard the gospel. One stated negatively, avoid irreverent babble. Guard the gospel, avoid irreverent babble. That call to guard the gospel It's given in one way or another about 15 times in this little book. If repetition is the mother of learning, well, Timothy should be very smart by now. He starts that, chapter 1, verse 3, charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. He says it again in chapter 1, verse 10. Oppose whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, which is in line with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. 
And then again in 118, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience by rejecting this. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. Then he says it again in 4 verse 1, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith and hold to the doctrines of demons. And then in 4 verse 5, you must be nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you followed. And then 4 verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the doctrine, the teaching. For by so doing, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. And then 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. And 6 verse 14, keep this commandment, this charge unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our God, our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then once more, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what's falsely called knowledge. It's an antithetical calling. Hold on to the sound teaching. Oppose, reject, put away from you the unsound teaching. It's always got to go both ways. Well, what's the urgency? Why say this over and over and over again throughout the book? And Timothy, 2 Timothy starts it all over again. He says, guard the, the good deposit in chapter 1 already. Well, first, it's the real and present urgency of life and death. It's a matter of life and death, the good deposit, the good doctrine. Remember chapter 1, verse 18? Hymenaeus and Alexander left the sound doctrine, made shipwreck of their faith, and they had to be handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. And remember the false teachers whose unhealthy doctrine led to unhealthy cravings that would lead to plunging them in, in ruin and misery? Remember what he says in chapter 4, that false doctrine is a doctrine of demons. It's demonic. It's a matter of life and death to hold the true faith, congregation. To guard the good deposit is, is not simply to guard the scripture. Because even the false teachers had the scripture. It's the sound doctrine that the scripture teaches the pure gospel, the essentials of the Christian faith, the creeds and the confessions that summarize all of the Bible, to be faithful in what you teach from the Bible. And not to have an ear for false doctrine. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He said earlier in the chapter that those who don't hold to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, verse 4, they're puffed up with conceit and they understand nothing. You have really no true knowledge to offer. I think of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now they've got a twisted version of the Bible, but for the first 50 or 60 years, they just, they just used the old King James and they had the same Bible as we did. 
It's what they did with it. It was irreverent, babble, and false knowledge that came with a preconception the Trinity can't be real. And they read their own preconceptions, their own lies into the Bible. So whenever they taught the Bible, it was false knowledge. It's deadly. I think a lot of, of a lot of prophecy preaching today. You know, a new war breaks out, especially in the Middle East. The prophecy preachers get into high gear. They make all their end times predictions. A lot of it is just empty speculation. It doesn't build you in the truth at all. It doesn't give you knowledge. Shut it off. It just produces drama and controversy. Avoid it. Oh, there are many who don't like the simplicity of the gospel. I think that the ancient practice of the Jewish Kabbalah, and I think that's what Paul and Timothy were dealing with their day. The Jewish Kabbalah, they're trying to find secret codes by counting letters in the Bible. Let's take every third letter from Genesis 2 and see what sort of secret message we could get. Or every fourth word from the book of Esther and see what names we can spell and secret codes we can come up with. It's balderdash. It doesn't produce knowledge, just lies. And so, Timothy, guard the gospel, the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and don't let it go. Guarding is essentially a conservative endeavor. Preserve, conserve it. One author wrote, the task of Timothy is not to innovate, but to preserve. Orthodox Christianity is not to be reinvented, re-envisioned, or reinterpreted. It is to be cherished, guarded, and defended. Guard the good deposit. It's the task of Timothy and of the whole church, which is the pillar and foundation of the truth, remember. God has deposited his truth in his church to guard and proclaim, because that's the saving message of Jesus Christ. The whole world needs to know when the church leaves it, it loses its lampstand has nothing to offer to the world but lies. But when the church guards it, she's the light of the world. In those days, they didn't have safety deposit boxes. So if you're going away on a trip, you took your valuables and you entrusted them to a a, a reliable person and you say, "You, you guard this with your life. You take care of it. And, And that's what God is saying to Timothy. I'm giving you the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the ministry of truth. Guard it. Everybody's trying to attack it. Guard it with your life. Because it's the saving truth of Jesus Christ. It's the purpose the church is here. It's our life and joy and strength and hope. And 
Grace be with you, he says at the end. And the you is plural, the whole church. You need to know this is a calling you can't keep in your own strength, but God's grace goes with you. His grace is sufficient for each new trouble, each new attack, each new trial, each new worry. Seek his grace and you'll have all you need to continue to fight the good fight of the faith. To lay hold on eternal life and to continue to make the good confession. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, these closing charges of 1 Timothy. Thank you that you know the needs of your people, the leaders and all the congregation. And that you speak so clearly to us here. We pray that you will help us to take hold of these truths with delight and joy and with firmness and tenacity. That we hold fast what we have so that no one may take our crown. Lord, keep us firm in the faith by your ever-present grace. In Jesus we pray, amen.